From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She's trying to live well despite knowing her Alzheimer's disease will almost certainly progress. Rebecca Chop left her job as chancellor at the University of Denver after she was diagnosed. I think that stereotype is that everyone goes to stage seven, seven stages of Alzheimer's, seventh is the worst, immediately. Chop is still in the early stages. She says she follows a special diet and exercises her body and mind. Creativity, we know, is extremely important. It strengthens, maybe even creates new neuropathways. Later, a once thriving mining town is now a spooky ghost town. Today, what you would see at Carpenter is kind of a shell of its former self. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Alzheimer's disease derailed the career of our next guest. In 2019, Rebecca Chop stepped down as chancellor at the University of Denver. She's since spoken publicly about her journey. The last time she joined us in June of last year, she said people had begun to treat her differently because of her diagnosis. I had people do things like talk louder to me, ask me to resign from a board, or talk just to my husband as if I had lost all comprehension. So I think there are a lot of stereotypes out there about the disease. Before CHOP led DU, she'd been president of Colgate University and Swarthmore College. She now paints, she's writing a book, and she pays special attention to diet and exercise, all while volunteering for the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado. CHOP gave Colorado Matters host Ryan Warner a progress update. Welcome back. It's great to be back. How's your cognitive function these days? You know, it's quite good. I mean, it's pretty much where it was the last time I was here. Short-term memory may be a little worse, but cognitively, I'm fine. I'm still reading, maintaining information, still driving, pretty much doing what I want to do. I wonder if the short-term memory changes are hard to suss out. Like, is it aging? Is it Alzheimer's? I mean, all of us are experiencing that who age, you know? Yeah, I think that's always a crucial issue with short-term memory challenges. So you really have to look at the whole picture. And um, my husband's a couple of years older, and I tease him that his short-term memory is and has always been way worse than Uh mine. (laughs) That's a point of comparison. Um. I ask this question, I think, out of my own a tendency to obsess over things. But if I had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I think that I would be hypervigilantly checking my memory, running little tests for myself, waking up and perhaps seeing, has anything changed? Do you find yourself dealing with that state of mind? Yes. I mean, I think that's the precariousness of being in these early stages, right? You you know what's coming and you're like, is it, is it now? 
I find myself sometimes counting backwards by seven. That's a classic Alzheimer's test. Or trying to remember four or asking my husband or someone else to give me four words and, you know, all the, all the tests. Uh, at the same time, it's really better to put your energy into maintaining your neuroplasticity through creativity, intellectual engagement, etc. Mm, it's really redirecting. Right, that. because that anxiety, which is what you're talking about, this yeah. kind of being in hypervigilance, anxious mode is, again, not good. You want to avoid anxiety. What did you say the test was? Counting backwards by what? By seven. seven. So go to 100 and count backwards by seven. Uh, uh, 93. <laughs> yeah. You mean yeah. like 93? It's tough. Yeah, yeah. And then I see. go back to zero. Yeah, I wouldn't do that well seven. myself. Um, Good to practice now. How are people treating you? So we played that recollection in the okay. introduction. Do you find that that has changed? Well, I think that a lot of my friends, um, the people I see regularly accept me. And the new friends accept me, and I've become very involved in the Alzheimer's Association and in an activist group called Voices of Alzheimer's. So they're very accepting. Mm -hmm. So I find myself uh, having withdrawn from people that can't cope. Occasionally when I see someone like that who had to withdraw or talk over me, they're kind of always surprised I'm still doing as well because, again, I think that stereotype is that everyone goes to stage seven, seven stages of Alzheimer's, seventh is the worst, immediately. Mm. And I also, as I've read more, I've done a lot of research, I realize that some people avoid you for the same reason they avoid someone who's lost a spouse or has cancer. They fear they will kind of catch it in an unconscious mm. way. Is there loss there? Uh, have you lost people that you were close to then? Uh, several. But, you know, I have to say the ones that uh, I've become close to are absolutely wonderful. So, yes, the loss is there. But I have so many wonderful people who support me. I know that you have moved into a senior living facility with your husband. That's a source of new relationships as well. Um, and that... Facility also has memory care, should you need it at some point. We actually moved from there. Um, it was fine, but we decided we wanted a house instead of an apartment. And we began to realize through research that my journey might be a lot longer. Interesting. So we moved. You, you jumped to stage seven yourself a bit too oh, fast. Oh, yes, I perhaps. did. And and I am working on a book, and I talk about that, about my own. And I think many of us have that stigma. You know, tomorrow I'm going to be a vegetable or I'm going to be, in my case, a little old lady <laughs> tied to a wheelchair. But um, I wanted a dog. I wanted a bigger art studio. And so we moved to a 55-plus community built with homes that you own. Uh, which I Does, suppose is, is um, a place you can occupy for a while. Yes. Until there's a more severe decline. Correct. That's the idea. Correct. You know, for so long, an Alzheimer's diagnosis was truly only 
officially possible in an autopsy. It was an after-the-fact kind of diagnosis. Tests have certainly gotten better. Yes. Um, will you remind us how you got a specific diagnosis and how that ha- has changed for people over time, the kind of certainty of a diagnosis? Yeah. You know, I, mine was a lucky chance of a primary care physician picking up on something and then lots and lots of tests. The neuropsychology tests are eight hours, six hours or eight hours, and they they are a very strong indication. But it's the nuclear kind of PET imaging scan of your brain that actually shows where the amyloid and the tangles of amyloid plaques are. So that's fairly definitive. Okay. And on that, they give it. But now we will have biomarkers very, very soon, and biomarkers will be able to tell many, many years before. Oh, my goodness. And that would be in the blood, yes. presumably. Yes. And you mentioned a PET scan that's kind of an injection dye yeah, yeah. sort of thing. So the the science of diagnosis is better. Of course, we know that pharmaceutical treatments are getting better. Um, I want to ask you about lifestyle changes that you've made mm-hmm. uh, in just a bit. But what medications are you on and are they helping? Well, the only one I am on is Aricept. There is, of course, aducanumab that uh, has been approved by the FDA, but it's not approved by CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. So FDA says it's fine. CMS says, yeah, but we're not paying for it. That's my lay layperson's rendition. So I have many friends on aducanumab who say that it has helped them so much. This is also known as adjuhelm, correct? Yes. Yeah. And but it's been controversial. There's, it, there's it, even it is controversial. within the, the medical It is. It field. is very controversial. It attacks uh, the plaques, the amyloid, and some of the best scientists say it's got to be the tau that has to be attacked, the tangles. But again, scientists are not sure. So there are no clinical trials for it in Colorado that I can find. And to be in a clinical trial is the only way you would get reimbursement. It's extremely expensive. Mm. My insurance would not cover it in any case. They, you know, had decided they wouldn't. When we get more data, who knows? The game will change. There's a lot of data showing they're not near as expensive as eight or nine years of intensive memory care in the home. Mm. That is to say, if you can extend someone's independence in a way. Correct. And then what are you noticing about the drug you're on? I mean, when when you're slowing something that might occur, it's hard to say I'm getting better. Do you know what I mean? Correct. Yeah. I I don't know. You know, Aricept itself is one of those, we think it kind of helps drugs. I think prevention helps as much as Aricept. Many say it will help only for a couple of years. I'm still on it, but... You know, again, I notice a little bit of memory decline, but not long-term memory decline. I know that diet and exercise are really important Mm -hmm. to you. What have you found that you most hang your hat on in terms of diet and in terms of lifestyle? Well, I think there are a number of of things, and the research on behavioral intervention is pretty clear. So we can talk about diet, uh, Mediterranean diet, and there is an Alzheimer's version called MIND, And it is a slight variation, and it's the addition of lots of blueberries, lots of walnuts, the smash, fish, salmon, mackerel, 
anchovies, herring, <laughs> sardines. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of good oils in yes, this Yes, you're diet. getting lots of good. My husband says a fish that smells the worst. Uh-huh. Um, avocados and those kinds of things. So the Mediterranean diet is very important. And avoiding processed foods. You want to avoid anything that adds inflammation to the brain. Mm. So exercise is extremely important. Insofar as it fights inflammation. It does. And it keeps the body overall healthy. So my neurologist says there are three kinds of exercise that you have to do. One is cardio. And there's a lot of good research on cardio now. The second is strength. Keep your body strong. And the third is choreography, the mind-body connection. So that would be dancing. It would be kickboxing. I actually tried line dancing. It really pushed me. In the end, I decided it was too much. So that's one of those cases where I thought, oh, yeah, my mind's not as good as it used to be. I used to be able to do it. Hmm, that kind Ballet, of I can do. It's slower. You mentioned that you're writing a book about your experiences. I know that you paint. Mm-hmm. And it, I think of painting as mind-body as well, hand-eye. Yes, Yes. I think, you know, besides exercise and diet, and this is what my book will be on, we'll be really talking about ways to live well while you're dying of Alzheimer's. Creativity, we know, is extremely important. For me, that's painting. It could be gardening. It could be storytelling. It allows, strengthens, maybe even creates new neuropathways. And again, anything creative helps the happiness and the joy of the body. Spirituality, I'm a trained theologian, so that's easy for me. And it's one of the questions when people who know my background want to talk to me about Alzheimer's, they want to talk about theology and spirituality. There's increasing research that spirituality does stimulate the brain. So it doesn't have to be any one kind, but it does help deepen and create new pathways. But to the extent as well that spirituality can be a comfort... Yes. ...goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Yes. ...which is fear, anxiety. Yes. Those are the enemies... Yes. ...of healing, of uh, the right frame of mind. Right. ...of peace. Uh Uh-huh. And I think for me and I think for many others... When one gets diagnosed in the early stages, one has time, time to spend with one love, loved ones, but maybe time also to experience spiritual paths that you just didn't have much time for before. Gratitude, being in the mountains and seeing the beauty. And I think those also help counter the fear. Hmm. So it's not simply stopping the fear, but trying to expand and replace and imagine There's a turn of phrase you used just a few moments ago, while you're dying of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I don't hear people talk about, I'm dying with Alzheimer's. I hear about a a lot of living with Alzheimer's, or I've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But there is a sobering, I don't know, surrender in the phrase you used there, Mm -hmm. dying of Alzheimer's, because this this will claim your life at some point, I guess. Correct. It will. And if one lives long enough, in a very tragic, tragic way. I think it's really important that we don't try to sugarcoat this. Mm. And I'm part of a small 
kind of executive group for this Voices of Alzheimer's, and we talk about this a lot. We are all about our empowering people to live well. But that living well is in the face of dying. And I think part of what we modern Western people struggle with is holding that paradox Mm -hmm. together, that one can feel joy and grief at the same time, that tragedy and hope, maybe it's God's hope, not our human hope, can coexist. And I think this is a time to learn both of these. The other reason I don't want to sugarcoat this is we need money for research. We need money to change policy. We need dollars and public awareness to understand the huge disparities in who gets Alzheimer's in this country. African Americans get it two and a half times more than whites. So we can't sugarcoat this and act as if, you know, if you've got money to buy oil paints and you can paint all as well. Mm -hmm. This is a tragic disease. In our last interview, you told us you'd rather not live past a certain point in your illness. Correct. Would you take advantage of Colorado's End of Life Options Act, do you think? Well, I'd love to, but it doesn't cover people with mental diseases. The laws in Colorado and the few other states that allow dying with dignity, it is confined to physical illnesses, not diseases of the mind. So you can't end your life. You're consigned to this miserable death. You're going to use all your family's resources. And your care partner has a 60% chance of dying before you do because of the stress and physical involvement. So to me, dying with dignity is a much better option. Hmm. Is that something you'll advocate for? I do. I am. Yes. What about hopes for a cure in your lifetime? What is your relationship to that thought? Well, I want to be the white flower. So the Alzheimer's, the walk to end Alzheimer's, you have flowers. You wear blue if you have it, you know, you wear yellow if you're a caretaker. And in the flower ceremony, there's always one white flower, which will be the flower worn by the first person cured from Alzheimer's. Hmm. We're close. I mean, I, I don't think we're on the edge. I hope it's in my lifetime. It may not be. But we have a medical revolution going on. There is more money for research. There is more support. I would say not enough, not enough money, not enough support. But people are just beginning to realize that this is a crisis. There are six million in the United States with Alzheimer's. That's people who've probably been diagnosed like me or more in the middle stages when we get the biomarkers. That's going to expand. We expect at least 50 million by 2050 who will be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I think, you know, we're on the edge here. We just got to keep pushing. The scientists themselves are fascinated with this topic. The breakthrough for Alzheimer's may also be the breakthrough for concussions, may be the breakthrough for Parkinson's, et cetera. So there's so much. Brain science is so rapidly expanding. Um, Rebecca Chop, as you've talked about the biomarkers... And the potential that many more people learn that they have Alzheimer's uh, or are on that path, early, early on in that path, there's a part of me that wouldn't want to know. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. I do. Sure. Like if it's an option, if my doctor says, would you like to find out? I don't know if I'm prepared. Right. 
Well, I think that's back to the fear. Uh-huh. I had a friend not too long ago said, yeah, we're all going to die. And I said, yeah, but I know the face of my death. But if you don't know that, you can't access these practices of, you know, having time with your family in a rich way, of taking care of yourself, of exploring, you know, art and creativity. Nobody wants to say it isn't tragic. Most people say they'd love to still be working. But they also talk about the importance of those years. It also occurs to me that that is a function of wealth and privilege. I mean, to someone who isn't in the economic circumstances to be able to stop working, I mean, that's really another life that they're entering. Correct. And I think, you know, I think that's so important to talk about. And I'm so glad you brought it up. I had a a Facebook contact not too long ago from a person who was scared to death her employers would figure it out. Because she needed to keep working. She had to keep working. She had to keep her insurance. She was young. You know, in the later stages, access to memory care Mm -hmm. or people coming into the home, maybe two hours a day to help. If you don't have the resources for that, it's going to all fall on your family. Before we go, are there ways in which you're trying to leave clues or reminders for your future self? You know, I think my paintings are part of that. Right now I'm painting my nephew, a great nephew. I will be painting my son and his wife soon. I paint my dog. I have this beloved dog I got a year ago. And I wonder if in the painting... If you think, remember this face, remember this nose, yeah. remember who this is, remember this line, right. remember this cheekbone. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Absolutely. And part of my trying to create a catalog is I have pictures of all my friends. Some of them have already passed. And I've got them in a journal with a short story by each of them. Hopefully my husband or some my son or my sister or someone can read it to me, hmm. just how I remember them. A little cliff note. Yeah, cliff notes to Rebecca's friends. Yeah. Thank you for being with us again. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Rebecca Chop speaking with Ryan Warner. Chop stepped down as the University of Denver's chancellor in 2019 after an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Before Chop led DU, she'd been president of Colgate University and Swarthmore College. She joins us from time to time to share her journey and her advocacy work with two groups, the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado and Voices of Alzheimer's. This conversation is part of an ongoing discussion about Alzheimer's disease and treatments. After the break, a closer look at the research focused on dementia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KR. There is a mountain in the distant west that, sun-defying, in its deep ravines displays a cross of snow upon its side. Those lines come from a sonnet by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a tribute to his late wife, partly inspired by a Colorado 14er, Mount of the Holy Cross, near Minturn. A favorite peak of painters, photographers, and inspiration seekers, Mount of the Holy Cross is named for a cross-shaped snowfield on its northeast face. But it is not as sun-defying as Longfellow implied. 
A Colorado summer eventually does melt the snow down a steep, narrow rut into a sapphire-colored lake. It's called the Bowl of Tears, another poetically inspired feature of the landscape, as hiking straight up Mount of the Holy Cross can be arduous. Before the snow melts, bring a helmet, ice axe, crampons, and plenty of rope. After the snow melts, climbing is not recommended. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Sheets and Giggles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Before the break, we spoke with former DU Chancellor Rebecca Chop about living with Alzheimer's. In Colorado and around the globe, researchers are scrambling to understand conditions like Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Recently, we interviewed Dr. Huntington Potter about a drug that might one day be used for people with memory loss. Dr. Potter directs the Alzheimer's and Cognition Center at CU Anschutz, and he told us about leukine, made of a normal human protein which is already on the market to help some patients improve their white blood cell count. His research found it also plays a role in the deposits found in the brains of people with Alzheimer's called amyloid. What we found was that it improves the memory and reduces the amyloid in mice. And now we've just finished the first clinical trial and leukine seems to improve the memory of people with Alzheimer's disease and also change their blood biomarkers of brain damage toward normal. Dr. Potter is currently overseeing clinical trials for leukine and its potential use to help treat Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Another Colorado researcher is trying to pinpoint why loneliness and memory loss are so intertwined. Rebecca Mullen is with the University of Colorado Department of Family Medicine. She says research has already shown that loneliness is bad for you and not just for memory. It's been associated with a huge amount of medical problems, including heart disease, stroke, and even dying early. The very popular saying about loneliness is that it's been shown to be as unhealthy for you as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Mullen says it's clear the pandemic left many people isolated and lonely, especially older people most at risk for cognitive decline. She says loneliness isn't always what people think. You can be alone and not lonely, and you can be with people and still feel lonely. Loneliness is really an uncomfortable feeling that you experience when you don't have the social relationships that you desire or that you want in your life. So no one can tell you that you're lonely. It's something that you personally experience. Mullen's goal is to find out exactly why memory loss and loneliness are so connected. She says it really is a chicken and egg question. Does loneliness come first and increase a person's risk for memory problems? Or is loneliness the result of memory decline? She says one hypothesis is that people who feel lonely aren't taking care of themselves. Things like lifestyle, diet, taking your medications, and that may also increase your stress, both your perceived stress in your life, but also the stress in your body, things like adrenaline and cortisol. Mullen will be studying older adults, those with a diagnosis of memory problems or Alzheimer's, and older adults who don't have any memory concerns or diagnoses. Ultimately, she wants to find ways to help people feel more connected and stay mentally sharp. 
Maybe that's deepening your current social connections by setting up more regular phone calls or video calls with your family and friends. But there are also ways to intervene and treat loneliness that really focus on increasing access to social opportunities so that you can develop new social connections, getting involved in local groups or clubs or even volunteering. Mullen says finding answers is urgent. About one in nine Americans over the age of 65 has Alzheimer's, and as baby boomers age, many more will likely be diagnosed. And on the research front into Alzheimer's, we also spoke with Lada Granholm-Bentley, who's studying people like athletes who've had concussions. She wants to understand their risk for Alzheimer's and whether that risk increases with multiple impacts. Granholm-Bentley is in the Department of Neurosurgery at CU Anschutz. For example, hockey players or service members who have had multiple impacts. And what I think is that it's sort of the perfect storm in the brain. And I know that many neurologists still have not recognized or do not want to admit that multiple hits to the head can lead to dementia. But it's an absolute fact. We see it over and over again. And so I think it's just a matter of showing people that these are the results but then also providing solutions. You know, you know, we don't want to just study the problem. Solutions like potential drugs that can reduce inflammation in the muscles, but also in the brain, and reduce the risk for Alzheimer's. Granholm Bentley also studies people with Down syndrome who have a 90% risk of developing Alzheimer's as they age. It's a very vulnerable population that They are not subject to any clinical trials, and there are not very good drugs available to help them with progression of Alzheimer. And they will get Alzheimer actually maybe in their 40s or 50s, so much earlier. Granholm Bentley is the lead investigator for an international study looking at the brain tissue of people with Down syndrome to identify ways to prevent or reduce cognitive decline. Her recent paper in the Journal of Alzheimer's and Dementia also adds to the growing evidence that exercise is a key piece of the Alzheimer's puzzle. People who do moderate exercise, for example, half an hour a day or even half an hour three times a week, it could be biking or moderate walking, they're actually increasing a very good protein in the brain that's called BDNF. And this protein will help you actually deal with stress, deal with inflammation, deal with amyloid. So just something simple like that, walking or being on a treadmill or a bicycle. We know for a fact that that reduces the risk and reduces progression. It's a very simple message. She said people shouldn't be drawn into the dozens of supplements advertised to reduce cognitive decline. But her research has found blueberries, also spinach, reduced memory loss in rats, as well as a Mediterranean-type diet and food high in omega-3 fatty acids. She says omega-3 supplements don't work as well as foods like salmon. And she herself does take two supplements— green mussel extract from New Zealand, and rosebud extract from Sweden. Both, she says, have a huge amount of beneficial antioxidants. And Colorado Matters will continue our reporting on Alzheimer's disease and memory in the weeks and months ahead. 
ghost towns have a special pull on our imagination. One named Carpenter was located in the barest of desert north of Grand Junction at the base of the Bookcliff Mountains. Its name comes from its founder, J.T. Carpenter. The town is so ghostly that you can barely see where it was. But more than a century ago, Carpenter was on track to possibly overshadow Grand Junction. Ike Rakeski from the Mesa County Library filled us in. Ike, welcome. Thank you. You've done quite a bit of hiking around the old town of Carpenter. Tell us what we would see or not see in Carpenter today. I'd say that today, what you would see at Carpenter is kind of a shell of its former self. At one point during Carpenter's heyday, it was quite a little town. It's interesting to see photos, historic photos of Carpenter, and to say like, whoa, what are these? There's like 10, 12 buildings here. And some of the buildings were quite elaborate. Uh, You'll find other random things. There's a a boulder with the year 1907 carved into it. You'll also see the the grade of the old railroad, the little Bookcliff Railroad. Um, I'd say that today, what you would see at Carpenter is is kind of a shell of its former self. And who was the man who started it all, um, W.T. Carpenter? What was it that made him see the area as something that had potential? Um, W.T. Carpenter had moved to the Grand Valley from Illinois. And what it was, the, the draw for the town of Carpenter, was, it was a mining camp for coal mining. He saw it, it wasn't just the, the two coal mines at Carpenter. There was the, the Bookcliff Mine and also the Grand Valley Mine. Um, mining has always been important in the development and the history of Mesa County. You also had the railroad, which allowed them to get the coal from the mines down to Grand Junction. And then U.S. also had these kind of interesting entrepreneurial ideas or pursuits that W.T. Carpenter um envisioned in his mind. You had the spring that's located nearby, other tourist draws that would bring people up to Carpenter. You know, a fancy place back east or maybe something like Glenwood Springs. He wanted it to be more than just the coal mines. Yeah. Did people buy into WT's plan for Carpenter that it would become a resort? I would say the whole like larger resort idea never really materialized. There was kind of a discussion amongst locals in the Grand Valley about what town would really take off, whether it would be Carpenter or Grand Junction. And nowadays, we know the result of that debate. We're here in downtown Grand Junction on Main Street. But Carpenter was a place to go for a lot of people. There were school groups that would go up there. There were groups that would go up there in the spring. Um, It sounds like the area around Carpenter was just filled with fields of wildflowers. So you would you would see stories in the newspaper. You would even see photos of these groups, you know, dressed up to go all the way out into the middle of the desert, a pretty desolate place. But going out to pick wildflowers was one of those things that brought pretty large groups to the town. And let's talk a little bit more about the Little Book Cliff Railroad that went from Carpenter right into the heart of Grand Junction. How important was that to the area's past? Yeah, so I've been to 
both as, as research as a librarian and also just as a recreational avid hiker in Mesa County. I've been to other ghost towns um, here in Mesa County. You don't have railroad tracks. You don't have railroads leading to those other ghost towns. The Bookcliff Railway allowed Carpenter to become a lot more than what it would have necessarily become. I think t- to me, having a, a railroad, any kind of railroad, connect a pretty rural ghost town or mining camp to what was really a developing Grand Junction would have made it pretty special in that way. And during the town of Carpenter's heyday, W.T. also built this lake in Grand Junction. He called it Rockaway Beach, and he sold yep. he sold home sites along it. He said it was going to be equal to Capitol Hill in Denver. Does Rockaway Beach still exist? Um, it does. So the lake is actually, there's the lakeside neighborhood here in Grand Junction. It's a nice little lake surrounded by green, you know, and, and where we are, it's the, we're in the high desert. Um, the fact that that lake still exists in is, is a nice little place to go and hang out. And the lake is one of the, probably in my opinion, one of the most pristine remnants of Carpenter's vision. It sounds like though it doesn't bear any resemblance to Capitol Hill in Denver. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen I've seen other examples that are similar where you have a man like W.T. Carpenter is, you know, not only was he a banker, an entrepreneur, an investor, but he was also just a a booster of his idea. Um, He wanted to make it sound like it was maybe bigger than it actually was. Carpenter, the place was going along just fine until 1893. That's when the silver market crashed, and that started to pull the coal industry down with it. And W.T.'s fortunes began to slip away. In 1897, he lost everything, or pretty much everything. He took off for the Yukon to try to make it there, and he ended up running a lemonade stand in Dawson, (laughs) Alaska. That eventually turned into a money-making lunch counter. And the next owner, Phillips, made this addition to Carpenter. He added sort of a carnival ride. Tell us about the Go Devil. Yep. So the Go Devil was a no motorized, not motorized at all. And it would take excursionists, people from the Grand Junction or, or anywhere in the Grand Valley and probably outside of the Grand Valley. It could take them all the way up to the foot of the book cliffs where the town was. And then using gravity um, and possibly wind, things like that, it could take them all the way back down to Grand Junction. Handbrake operated. Um, if something like that existed nowadays, I wonder if it would even be possible due to possible safety concerns and liability and things like that. And Phillips himself didn't buy Carpenter with his own money. It was financed by his uncle back in Massachusetts. And I understand when that uncle died, Carpenter actually ends up in the hands of Princeton University. How did that happen? Yeah, so it's, you kind of wonder, yeah, it's like, how did an Ivy League school like Princeton, where was that connection? Um, It was owned by the school for quite a while. I don't think a long period of time, but quite a while. Yeah, you have this Ivy League school back in the East Coast, and then you have it oversee these coal mines in the camp. And it's just kind of an interesting little side note in history, I think. 
then Carpenter sort of dropped off the map um, and was pretty much forgotten until the 1960s. Some teens were exploring out in the desert, and they stumbled on what was left of Carpenter, and that sparked a flurry of attention, a lot of vandalizing, and most of what was left in town was hauled off. Then flash forward to 1989, Carpenter was in the news again when three Grand Junction teens died there. What happened? Yeah, so I was I was about 10 years old when that, that tragic accident occurred. As far as I understand, there were six young people, six teens, who went into the Bookcliff mine, and then three of them tragically died because of the fumes. And then what actually, the, the cause of their death, as far as I understand, was the lack of oxygen at the bottom of the floor of the mine. And the three other ones were able to escape and get back to the nearest town and neighborhood and call call the authorities. It seems that very few people in the area have even heard about Carpenter. Has there been any movement to memorialize it? There's there is a memorial to the the teens who died at the Bookcliff mine. I only ever heard about Carpenter through my work as a librarian at, at Mesa County Libraries and a patron had actually asked me about it. I thought, I've never even heard of Carpenter. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot of knowledge about the town of Carpenter. The good news, though, is that there's the book that exists that really is a gem um, as far as talking about the history of the town. Ike, thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. Ike Rakeski is with Mesa County Libraries. He talked about the Mesa County ghost town of Carpenter, which mostly has been lost to scavengers and to the shifting sands of time. The coffee table book he mentioned is called Little Book Cliff Railway. Wonderbound in Denver is one of just five ballet companies that kept dancing for live audiences throughout the pandemic shutdown. CPR's Eden Lane shares how the state's second largest ballet company did it as it prepares for another full season. Collaborating with local musicians and writers is a hallmark of the original work Wonderbound produces. The pandemic restrictions interrupted that component of their work, yet they never stopped dancing. Artistic Director Garrett Ammon. The thing that I'm really proud of, um, and we're all really proud of, is that we never actually shut down during the pandemic. We kept all of our dancers and all of our employees on payroll, and we kept working all the way through the pandemic. How did you do that? Yeah. um, (laughs) At first, we were doing it by having people work from home. So we didn't do Zoom classes or anything. I personally found kind of a visceral like dislike of that experience but what we did was first we um, set the dancers about creating short dance films and dance tutorials ultimately through the course of the pandemic we created over 160 dance films and and tutorials that we shared with the community the product of that work remains available on wonderbound's website and digital platforms During the height of the pandemic, the company's dedication to rigorous daily ballet class and deep commitment to return to in-person work required sacrifices. We were able to get back into the studio, essentially create our own bubble. Everyone had to commit to the idea that they were essentially going to go home, go to work, and then do 
you know, the bare minimum of errands, you know, the grocery store, the gas station. And by doing that, by everyone committing to that, we were able to come back earlier than most companies. Ammon says the National Endowment for the Arts noted Wonderbound was one of just five companies nationwide that kept dancing for live audiences during pandemic shutdowns. Just 25 audience members at a time were allowed to watch, all at socially distanced cabaret tables. This arrangement prohibited working with live music, one of the distinctive attributes of the company. Dancer Jocelyn Green. So moving away from that during the pandemic was definitely a little bit sad, but at the same time, we were still so grateful to be able to continue performing. Company member Damian Peterson. When we lost live music, it felt like we lost a little bit of our identity because the live music was so much of what Wonderbound became. And when we lost that, I was like, oh no, this is, this is going to be a rough time for us. But we just, in our Wonderbound way, we just plow through and we keep going. Keep Going carries another meeting for Patterson this season. After 14 years with Wonderbound, he had announced his retirement last year but Ammon persuaded him to stay for one more season. It, it was a beautiful thing for them. <clears throat> Sorry. It was a beautiful thing for them to come up to me and ask me because um, that doesn't happen. And to be able to have a career for so long and then the moment that it's time for you to stop, they don't want you to leave is, is I wasn't even supposed to dance this long. And then the fact that someone is coming up to me and asking me to continue I, it, it, it feels like a fairy tale in my mind. Wonderbound has a track record of maintaining long-term relationships with its company members. Sarah Tallman's history predates the company name change from Ballet Nouveau, Colorado to Wonderbound, and even before Garrett Ammon and his wife Dawn Fay took leadership. Tallman has retired from performing, but now she is the ballet master and associate choreographer. And Ammon and Tallman are collaborating on a new work for the winter season. Yes. So um, we are doing a ballet called Burlesque. It's spelled B-R-R-R exclamation point E-S-Q-U-E. Ammon says it will keep the cabaret style of the popular Winterland Ballet with a new twist. It's got a kind of a Cold War bent to it. So an added little layer to the the burr part of burlesque. So yeah, uh, it, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun show. It's a lot of dancing. We're really excited to introduce that to our audiences. As part of the new season, Wonderbound is returning to live music for some shows and returning to welcoming in a larger audience. Again, dancer Jocelyn Green. I think this season is really not a return, but kind of a renewal for Wonderbound as we get to have more people in the space and get back to a little bit of normal, but also kind of a new normal. Damian Peterson. I think that it's a, a beautiful place that tells human stories and we as artists get to do some great work and we get to find ourselves and we get to grow um, as artists. Wonderbound is really, really special in that way. And then to add the live music one, to it and just, you know, the guts that we have and the push forward that we have. I think that the city really needs to know that we're here and we're telling this city's stories and we're using this city's artists. Sarah Tallman. I am so excited for our audience to continue to come to see these beautiful works that are athletic that are physical, that are rigorous to the technique that we spoke of, 
but also that speak to humanity and bringing connection to our community is really, really important. And I'm excited for our audience to see everything and also that I'm so fortunate to be a part of the process and continue to be a part of work that I love. Ammon acknowledges that the pandemic has challenged everyone, but through that, Ammon has also seen societies, not just his company's eagerness to keep going. We're so thrilled to be continuing forward, to kind of be moving into the daylight after this long haul that we've been all been on. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the team who helps make it all happen. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis with special thanks to Nancy Loftholm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 